Chapter 2 Everybody knows that Maniac McGee, then Jeffrey, started out in Hollidaysburg and wound up in two mills. The question is, what took him so long? And what did he do along the way? Sure, 200 miles is a long way, especially on foot, but the year that it took him to cover it was about 51 weeks more than he needed, figuring the way he could run, even then. The legend doesn't have the answer. That's why this period is known as the lost year. And another question? Why did he stay here? Why two mills? Of course, there's the obvious answer that sitting right across the school kill is Bridgeport, where he was born. Yet, there are other theories. Some say he just got tired of running. Some say it was the butterscotch crimpets. And some say he only intended to pause here, but that he stayed because he was so happy to make a friend. If you listen to everybody who claims to have seen Jeffrey Maniac McGee that first day, there must have been 10,000 people and a parade of fire trucks waving for him at the town lines. Don't believe it. A couple of people truly remember, and here's what they saw. A scraggly little kid jogging towards them, the soles of both sneakers hanging by their hinges and flopping open like dog tongues each time they came up from the pavement. But it was something they heard that made him stick in their minds all these years. As he passed them, he said, hi, just that, hi, and he was gone. They stopped, they blinked, they turned, they stared after him. They wondered, do I know that kid? Because people just don't say that to strangers out of the blue. Chapter 3. As for the first person to actually stop and talk with Maniac, that would be Amanda Beale. And it happened because of a mistake. It was around 8 in the morning, and Amanda was heading for grade school, like hundreds of other kids all over town. What made Amanda different was that she was carrying a suitcase, and that's what caught Maniac's eye. He figured she was like him, running away, so he stopped and said, Hi. Amanda was suspicious. Who was this white stranger kid? And what was he doing in the East End, where almost all the kids were black? And why was he saying that? But Amanda Beale was also friendly. So she stopped and said, Hi, back. Are you running away? Jeffrey asked her. Huh? said Amanda. Jeffrey pointed at the suitcase. Amanda frowned, then thought, then laughed. She laughed so hard she began to lose her balance, so she set the suitcase down and set it so she could laugh more safely. When at last she could speak, she said, I'm not running away, I'm going to school. She saw the puzzlement on his face. She got off the suitcase and opened it up right there on the sidewalk. Jeffrey gasped. Books. Books, all right. Both sides of the suitcase crammed with them, dozens more than anyone would ever need for homework. Jeffrey fell to his knees. He and Amanda and the suitcase were like rocks in a stream. The schoolgoers just flowed to the left and the right around them. He turned his head this way and that to read the titles. He lifted the books on top to see the ones beneath. There were fiction books and nonfiction books, who did it books and let's be friends books and what is it books and how to books and how not to books and just regular kid books. On the bottom was a single volume from an encyclopedia. It was the letter A. My library, Amanda Beale said proudly. Somebody called, gonna be late for school, girl. Amanda looked up. The street was almost deserted. She slammed the suitcase shut and started hauling it along. Jeffrey took the suitcase from her. I'll carry it for you. Amanda's eyes shot wide. She hesitated. Then she snatched it back. Who are you? She said. Jeffrey McGee. Where are you from, West End? No. She stared at him, at the flap-soled sneakers. Back in those days, the town was pretty much divided. The East End was blacks, and the West End was whites. I know you're not from the East End. I'm from Bridgeport. Bridgeport, over there, that Bridgeport. 
Yep. Well, why aren't you there? It's where I'm from, not where I am. Great. So where do you live? Jeffrey looked around. Um, I don't know. Maybe here? Maybe. Amanda shook her head and chuckled. Maybe you better go ask your mother and father if you live here or not. She speeded up. Jeffrey stopped back, dropped back for a second, then caught up with her. Why are you taking these books to school? Amanda told him. She told him about her little brother and sister at home who loved to crayon every piece of paper they could find, whether or not it already had type all over it. And about the dog, Bow Wow, who chewed everything he could get his teeth on. And that, she said, is why she carried her whole library to and from school every day. First bell was ringing. The school was just a block away. Amanda ran. Jeffrey ran. Can I have a book? He said. They're mine, she said. Just to read, to borrow. No. Please, what's your name? Amanda. Please, Amanda, anyone. Your shortest one. I'm late now, and I'm not going to stop and open this thing up. Forget it. He stopped. Amanda! She kept running, then stopped, turned, glared. What kind of kid was this anyway? All grungy, ripped shirt. Why didn't he go back to Bridgeport or to the West End where he belonged? Bother some white girl up there. And why was she still standing here? So what if I loaned you one, huh? How am I going to get it back? I'll bring it back. Honest. If it's the last thing I'll do, what's your address? 728 Sycamore. But you can't come there. You can't even be here. Second bell rang. Amanda screamed. World ran. Amanda! She stopped, turned. Ugh! She squeaked. She tore a book from the suitcase, hold it at him, here, and dashed off into school. The book came flapping like a wounded duck and fell at Jeffrey's feet. It was a story of the children's crusade. Jeffrey picked it up, and Amanda Beale was late to school for the only time in her life. Chapter 4. Jeffrey made three other appearances that first day. The first came at one of the high school fields during 11th grade gym class. Most of the students were playing soccer, but about a dozen were playing football because they were on the varsity and the gym teacher happened to be the football coach. The star quarterback, Brian Dehaney, would wind up, wound up and threw a 60-yarder to his favorite receiver, James Hands Down, who was free- streaking a fly pattern down the sideline. But the ball never quite reached Hands just as he was about to cradle it in his big brown loving mitts, it vanished. By the time he recovered from the shock, a little kid was weaving up field through the varsity football players. Nobody laid a paw on him. When the kid got down to the soccer field, he turned and punted the ball. It sailed back over the up-looking gym classers, spiraling more perfectly than anything Brian Dehaney had ever thrown, and landed in the outstretched hands of a still little stunned hands down. Then the kid ran off. There was one thing, something that all of them saw, but no one believed until they compared notes to the school day. Up until that punt, the kid had done everything with one hand. He had to be. It had to be, because in his other hand was a book. Chapter 5. Later on that day, there was a commotion on the West End. At 803 Oriole Street, to be exact. At the backyard of 803 Oriole, to be exacter. This, of course, was the infamous address of the Finsterwald. Kids stayed away from the Finsterwalds the way old people stay away from Saturday afternoon matinees at a $2 movie. And what would happen to a kid who didn't stay away? That was a question best left unanswered. Suffice it to say that occasionally, even today, some poor, raggedly wench is seen shuffling through town. Word will spread that this once was a bright, happy, normal child who had the misfortune of blundering into Finsterwald's property. 
That's why, if you valued your life, you never chased a ball into Finsterwald's backyard. Finsterwald's backyard was a graveyard of tennis balls and baseballs and footballs and frisbees and model airplanes and one-way boomerangs. That's why his front steps were the only unsat-on front steps in town, and why no paper kid would ever deliver there, and why no kid on a snow day would ever shovel at that sidewalk, not for a zillion dollars. So, it was that late afternoon, and screams were coming from Finsterwald's. Who? What? Why? The screamer was a boy's name who was lost to us. For after this day, he disappears from the pages of history. We believe he was about ten years old. Let's call him Arnold Jones. Arnold Jones was being hoisted in the air above Finsterwald's backyard fence. The hoisters were three or four high school kids. This was one of the things they did for fun. Arnold Jones had apparently forgotten... One of the cardinal rules of the survival in the West End, never let yourself be near Finsterwalds and high school kids at the same time. So that's, there's Arnold Jones held up by these hands, flapping and kicking and shrieking like some poor Aztec human sacrifice about to be tossed off to a pyramid. No, no, please, he please, please. So of course they did it. The high schoolers dump him into the yard and now they back off, no longer laughing, just watching watching the back door of the house, the windows, the dark green shades. As for Arnold Jones, he clams up the instant he hits the ground. He's on his knees now, all hunched and puckered. His eyes goggle at the back door and at the back doorknob. He's paralyzed, a mouse in front of the yawning maw of a python. Now, after a minute or two of breathless silence, one of the high school schoolers thinks he hears something. He whispers, listen. Another one hears it. A faint, tiny noise, a rattling, a chittering, a chattering, and getting louder. Yes, chattering teeth. Arnold Jones's teeth. They're chattering like snare drums. And now, as if his mouth isn't big enough to hold the chatter, the rest of his body joins in. First, it's a buzzing like trembling, then the shakes, and finally, it's as if every bone inside him is clamoring to get out. A high schooler squawks, he's got the finster wallies. Yeah, yeah, they yell, and they stand there cheering and clapping. Years later, the high schoolers' accounts differ. One says the kid from nowhere hopped the fence, hopped it without ever laying a hand on it to boost himself over. Another says the kid just opened the back gate and strolled on in. Another swears it was a mirage, some sort of hallucination, possibly caused by evil emancipation surrounding 803 Oriole Street. Real or not, they all saw the same kid. Not much bigger than Arnold Jones, raggedy, flap-soled sneakers, book in one hand. They saw him walk right up to Arnold, and they saw Arnold look up at him and faint dead away. Such a bad case of the Finsterwallies did Arnold have that his body kept shaking for half a minute after he conked out. The Phantom Samaritan stuck the book between his teeth, crouched down, hoisted Arnold James' limped carcass over his shoulder, and hauled him out there like a sack of flour. Unfortunately, he chose to put Arnold down at the one spot in town as bad as Finsterwally's backyard, namely Finsterwall's front steps. When Arnold came to and discovered this, he took off like a horsefly from his water. As the stupefied high schoolers were leaving the scene, they looked back. They saw the kid, cool times ten, stretched out on the forbidden steps and open his book to read. Chapter 6. About an hour later, Mrs. Valerie Pickwell twanged open her back screen door, stood on the step, and whistled. As whistles go, 
Mrs. Pickwell's, was one of the all-time greats. It reeled in every Pickwell kid for dinner every night. Never was a Pickwell kid ever late for dinner. It's a record that will probably stand forever. The whistle wasn't loud. It wasn't screechy. It was a simple two-note job. One high note, one low. To an outsider, it wouldn't sound all that special. But to the ears of a Pickwell kid, it was magic. Somehow, it had the ability to slip through the slush of five o'clock noises to reach its targets. So, from the dump, from the creek, from the tracks, from Red Hill, it ran the Pickwell kids for dinner, all ten of them. And to that, their parents, baby Dee Dee, grandmother and grandfather Pickwell, great-grandfather Pickwell, and a down-and-out taxi driver who Mr. Pickwell was helping out. The Pickwells were always helping out somebody. All that, and you had what Mrs. Pickwell called her small nation. Only a ping-pong table was big enough to sit them all, and that's and that's what they ate around. Dinner was spaghetti. In fact, every third night dinner was spaghetti. When dinner was over and they were all bringing their dirty dishes to the kitchen, Dominic Pickwell said to Duke Pickwell, Who's that kid? What kid? said Duke. The kid next to you at the table. I don't know. I thought Donald knew him. I don't know him, said Donald. I thought Dion knew him. Never saw him, said Dion. I figured he was Deidre's new boyfriend. Deidre kicked Dion on the shins. Duke checked back in the dining room. He's gone. The Pickwell kids dashed out the back door to the top of Rock Oak Hill. They scanned the railroad tracks. There he was, passing Red Hill, a book in his hand. He was running, passing the spear field now. And the Pickwell kids had to blink and and squint and shade their eyes to make sure they were seeing it right. Because the kid wasn't running the cylinders the cinders along the tracks, or the wooden tires. No, he was running, running, where the Pickwells themselves, where every other kid had only ever walked, on the steel rail itself. Chapter 7. When Jeffrey McGee was next spotted, it was at the Little League field in the park. A Little League game had just ended. The Red Sox had won, but the big story was John McNabb, who struck out 16 batters to set a new two mills LL record. McNabb was a giant. He stood five feet eight and was said to weigh over 170 pounds. He had to bring his birth certificate into the league director to prove he was only 12, and still most people didn't believe it. The point was, the rest of the league was no match for McNabb. It wouldn't have been so bad if he'd been a right fielder, but he was a pitcher, and there was only one pitch he ever threw, a fastball. Most of the batters never saw it. They just heard it whizzing past their noses. You could see their knees shaking from the stands. One poor kid stood there long enough to hear strike one go past, then threw up all over the plate. It was still pretty light out, because when there are a lot of strikeouts, the game goes fast. And McNabb was still on the mound, even though the official game was over. He figured he'd made baseball history, and he wanted to stretch it out as long as he could. There were still about 10 players around, Red Soxers and Green Soxers, and McNabb was making them march up to the plate and take their swing. There was no catcher. The ball just zoomed into the backstop. When a kid struck out, he went back to the end of the line. McNabb was loving it. After each whiff, he laughed and bellowed the strikeout total. 26, 27, 28! He was like a shark. He had the bloodlust. The victims were hunched and trembling, walking the gangplank. 34, 35. And then somebody new stepped up to the plate. He was a punky, runty little kid. No Red Sox, Green Sox uniform. Kind of scraggly. 
with a book which he laid down on home plate. He scratched out a footing in the batter's box, cocked the bat at his shoulder, and stared at McNabb. McNabb croaked from the mound. Get out of here, runt. This is a little league record. You ain't in little league. The kid walked away. Was he chickening out? No. He was lifting a red cap from the next batter in line. He put it on. He was back in the box. McNabb almost fell off the mound. He was laughing so hard. Okay, runt. Number 36 coming up. McNabb fired. The kid swung. The batters in line automatically turned their eyes to the backstop where the ball should be, but it wasn't there. It was in the air, riding on a beeline right out to McNabb's head. The same line it came on, only faster. McNabb froze, then flinched just in time. The ball missed his head, but nipped the bill of his cap and sent it spinning like a flying saucer out to shortstop. The ball landed in the second base dust and rolled all the way to the fence in the center field. Dead silence. Nobody moved. McNabb was gaping at the kid, who was still standing there, all calm and cool, waiting for the next pitch. Finally, a sort of grin slithered across McNabb's lips. He roared, get my hat, get the ball. Ten kids scrambled onto the field, bringing him the hat and ball. McNabb had it figured out now. He was so busy laughing at the runt, he lobbed him a lollipop, and the runt got lucky and pulled it. This time, McNabb wasn't laughing. He fingered the ball tips dangling and the red stitching. He wound, he fired, he thought, man, that sucker's going so fast, even I can hardly see it. And then he was looking up, turning, following the flight of the ball, which finally came down to earth in deep left center field and bounced once to the fence. More silence except from someone who yelped, yep, and then caught himself. Ball, bellowed McNabb. He was handed the ball. He slammed his hat to the ground. His nostrils flared. He was breathing like a picadored bull. He windmilled, reared, lunged, fired. This time the ball cleared the fence on the fly. No more holding back. The other kids cheered. Somebody ran for the ball. They were anxious now for more. Three more pitches, three more home runs. Pandemonium on the sidelines. It was raining red and green hats. McNabb couldn't stand it. The next time he threw... It was right at the kid's head. The kid ducked. McNabb called. Strike one. Next pitch headed for the kid's belt. The kid bent his stomach around the ball. Strike two. Strike three took dead aim at the kid's knees. And here was the kid swooping back and at the same time swatting at the ball like a golfer teeing off. It was the craziest ball swing you, baseball swing you ever saw. But there was the ball smoking out to center field. Hold it, run, snarled McNabb. I can't pitch right when I got a whiz. The kids on the sideline made way as McNabb stomped up the field, past the dugout, and into the woods between the creek and the field. They waited a pretty long time, but they figured, well, McNabb's whiz probably would last longer than any regular kids. Might even take the, make the creek rise. At last, McNabb was back on the mound, fingering the ball in his glove, a demon's gleam in his eye. He wound up fired, the ball headed for the plate, and what's this? A leg ball? It's got legs? Long legs pinwheeling toward the plate. It wasn't a ball at all. It was a frog. And McNabb was on the mound cackling away. And the kid at the plate was bug-eyed. He never, nobody'd ever tried to hit a fast frog before. 
So what did the kid do? He bunted it. He bunted the frog, laid down a perfect bunt on the front of the plate. Third baseline, he took off for first. He was halfway to second before McNabb jolted himself into action. The kid was trying for an inside-the-park home run bunt, the rarest feat in baseball, something that had hardly ever been done with a ball and never with a frog. And to be the pitcher who let such a thing happen, well, McNabb could already feel his strikeout record fading to a mere grain in the sandlot of history. So he lumbered off the mound after the frog, which was now hopping down the third baseline. As a matter of fact, it was so closely to so close to the line that McNabb had a brilliant idea. Just heard the frog across the line and it would be a foul ball or frog, which is what he tried to do with his foot. But the frog, instead of taking a left turn at the shoe, jumped over it and hopped on toward third base. He was heading for the green fields of left, and the rent kid, sounding like two runners with his flap soles slapping at the bottom of his feet, was chucking dust for the third. Only one hope now. McNabb had to grab the frog and tag the runner out. But now the frog shot through his legs, over the mound, and now toward the shortstop and now towards second, and McNabb was lurching and lunging, throwing his hat at the frog, throwing a glove, and everybody was screaming, and the kid was rounding third and digging for home, and unbefroggable. The ball was heading back home, too. The ball, the batter, the pitcher, all racing for home plate, and it was the batter, the new kid out of nowhere, who crossed the plate first, at the same time, scooping up his book, twirling his borrowed red cap back to the cheering others and jogging on past the empty stands and up the hill to the boulevard. McNabb gasping, croaking after him. Don't stop till you're out of town, Runt. Don't let me ever catch you. And that's how Jeffrey McGee knocked the world's first frog ball for a four-bagger. Chapter 8 and how he came to be called Maniac. The town was buzzing. The schools were buzzing. Hallways, lunchrooms, streets, playgrounds, West End, East End. Buzzing about the new kid in town. The, stra the stranger kid, scraggly, carrying a book, flap-soled sneakers. The kid who intercepted Brian Dehaney's pass to hands down and punted it back longer than Dehaney himself ever threw it. The kid who rescued Arnold Jones from Finsterwald's backyard. The kid who tattooed tattooed giant John McNabb's fastball for half a dozen home runs, then circled the sacks on a bunted frog. Nobody knows who said it first, but somebody must have said, kid's gotta be a maniac. And somebody else must have said, yeah, regular maniac. And somebody else said, yeah. And that's how, and that was it. Nobody, except Amanda Beale, had any other name for him. So pretty soon, when they wanted to talk about the new kid, that's what they called him, maniac. The legend had a name, but not an address, at least not an official one with numbers. What he did have was the deer shed at the Elmwood Park Zoo, which is where he slept his first few nights in town. What the deer ate, especially the carrots, apples, and day-old hamburger buns, he ate. He started reading Amanda Beale's book his second day in town and finished it that afternoon. Ordinarily, he would have returned it immediately, but he was so fascinated by the story of the children's crusade that he kept it and read it the next day. And the next. When he wasn't reading, he was wandering. When most people wander, they walk. Maniac McGee ran. Around town, around the nearby shops, always carrying a book, keeping it in perfect condition. This is what he was doing when his life, as it often seemed to do, took 
an unexpected turn.